Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Today's guest is Ari Paul, one of my favorite personalities in the space. Ari's been around a long time. He, uh, founder and CEO of Block Tower Capital. Ari, how are you doing? Doing well, bully. Uh, you know, pleasure. And, and you're one of my favorite uh, uh, Twitter people. And this is the first time we've had the the chance to chat, and that and that's why I wanted to, to hop on, really, just to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Yeah, I remember listening back in 2017 on when you were on Crypto Street podcast. Um, that feels like a hundred years ago, but I always think about that episode. And there is a point in it where you were talking about how you know the institutions, and I think the context of the discussion was mainly around trading bots and sort of institutional traders and trading desks coming to crypto. And they hadn't quite gotten there yet at that point. And you were like, make hay while the sun shines and enjoy yourself now because the algos are coming and these sophisticated trading operations are coming. And sure enough, that sort of played out. And I think, uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that three years later, sort of reflecting on do you think there's still a big opportunity for retail investors in the space and kind of um, what the impact of the institutional investor side of the shop has been? Yeah, so I've actually been pleasantly surprised at how uncompetitive crypto still is today. Um, Even though you have obviously, you know, everyone from some of the big bank desks now sell Bitcoin and and you have uh, guys like Susquehanna International Group and and DRW has been around forever. Uh, Cumberland is is the big crypto trading firm and they're a subsidiary of the big trading shop DRW. They've been in the game for years now, but um, you know, they're fully in. They're, they're applying all of their machine learning techniques. They have huge teams and there's a bunch of other very professional trading shops and, and hedge funds now doing it. And yet, um, while the absolute simplest stuff has been mostly arbitraged away, things like arbitraging Gemini and Coinbase. Like in late 2017, I made a few million dollars myself manually clicking, literally manually clicking. And it was like, why is this happening? Like, why is this possible? It was just crazy, right? Because I knew there were already bots doing it, but, and I wasn't trying to compete with them, but it's like, man, there's an ARP here. Like I'll click and do it. So that stuff has kind of been arbitraged away. The simplest, easiest arbitrages. Um, It's not that they don't exist, but it's now a very small spread. It's, you know, pretty competitive. Um, But almost everything else is relatively untouched. And I think that's because um, one the, the way this, my mental model for this is that basically professionals allocate a certain amount of capital and capital includes human capital, you know? So like, comp, like DRW probably didn't have their very best traders on crypto, you know, in 2016, they probably had some young guys who were kind of expendable. And then as crypto gets bigger, suddenly, you know, the, Don Wilson, the founder, he's more focused on it. He has his, his best traders on it. He hires more people for it. 
Um, so basically the pros allocate more capital and effort to arbitraging the stuff away, but organically there's more and more money coming in creating more and more inefficiencies. And the pros are generally kind of lagging, partly because they, they want to see the money there before they allocate resources to capture it. You know, So during bull cycles, uh, the pros are just leaving so much money on the table that a lot of the, a lot of the basic strategies still work. And I think retail, um, and, and even insofar as the pros take the, the simple stuff like arbitrage, um, they're always behind in terms of the risk spectrum. So you know, six months ago, they weren't in DeFi at all. You know, so if you were a, a air quotes retail, but you were smart and savvy and willing to put in the time, you could make a mint doing some complex things in DeFi and you had no competition. There were, there were no professionals, you know, and it's going to be, I don't know when you're going to see, uh, I, I don't know what Cumberland's doing. I don't want to speak to that, but you're not going to see a Citadel trying to apply algos to DeFi for a long time because there's sure. so many risks that are so uh, existentially risky to them. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, like with rug pulls and just the inability to properly do diligence, even on like the most basic projects, I suppose that the risk tolerance, like you mentioned before, probably scares them away too. Yeah. So I, I, it's, I, it, we're, we're, we're still, it's still a blue ocean in terms of trading opportunity. The only things that I've seen kind of mostly arbitraged away are the absolute simplest algo strategies on the absolute safest exchanges. Sure. So you mentioned DeFi and sort of alluded to farming and stuff. I, I'm curious, what what's your take on all of this? Are you doing it? Are you involved? Like, um, yeah. Well, I'll just start from sort of the trading side of things. Are you are you farming and yield yield farming and things like that? Yes, but probably much more conservatively than you know most people who are full time in the space. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to be. It's funny, like I, I, in by traditional standards, I'm super risk seeking, right? I, I bet my career on crypto in early 2017. Um, I've been all in in crypto uh, personally. Like you know, I, I'm, I have a very high risk tolerance. But by crypto standards, I'm somewhat risk averse in the sense that. Um, I'm so focused on this one, like my entire mentality and approach to crypto is kind of one sentence. It's don't blow up and you'll win. Mm -hmm. uh, the tailwinds are so strong. I'm so convicted in the ongoing opportunity set that I feel no pressure to capture any specific opportunity. So, you know, it, in, in traditional finance, if there's a wild mispricing in equity markets, it's a once a decade thing. If you can, you know, if you can make, uh, you know, if you can put a billion dollars into it, those occurrences are so rare that you have to capture them because otherwise you might be waiting five years for another one. In crypto, it's every three months, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's NFTs or crypto gaming or, or arbitrage, you know, now we have the kimchi premium arising again, which some people will be able to arbitrage. Um, whether it's DeFi yield farming, like there's going to be another amazing opportunity every few months. And so um, I'm somewhat risk averse in that I really want to understand the risks I'm taking. Uh, I it, It's not that I'm unwilling to take risks. It's that um, th something I'm fond of saying is that there's no such thing as too risky. It's always a sizing question. Mm -hmm. If you're being properly compensated for the risk, if the expected return is high enough, I would want to take every risk on the planet with some size, right? The problem is uh, with something like DeFi yield farming, it was so complex to truly understand all of the possible game theory exploits, the smart contract exploits, um, that my feeling was I I'm not willing to have all that much exposure to it until I feel like I really understand it. And in hindsight, actually, I think I was a little bit underexposed, even within that framework. Um, I think I, I could have, uh, I won't use exact numbers, but um, I, you know, I had some exposure. We did very, very well in that space. I wish I had had more exposure. Um, I don't regret not putting, you know, all of my net worth in a, a series of different, you know, yield farms to, to be earning the whatever 500% annualized returns, because 
I couldn't have even have guessed what my risk of ruin was. I, you know, I didn't under, like when we saw the write-ups about some of the more complex flash loan exploits, I had to read it twice just to understand the write-up of the exploit, let alone be able to predict it exactly, you know? So we knew a lot of exploits were going to happen because it's a massive attack surface. We didn't know exactly what types. We didn't know exactly how much damage would be done. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, the way to approach that is uh, do a lot of hard work to try to be not necessarily know everything, but make sure you know more than most people um, and then limit your risk to what you're willing to lose. Yeah. So our pro I can tell you concretely, we bet on governance tokens much more than yield farming. And the thinking behind that was if I buy something like Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi, I know my risk is it can go to zero and I'm expecting it to give me a multiple very quickly. You know, I, we, I'm hoping for a 10x, let's say in three months. That's a clearly defined trade, you know, which I understand. I understand it can go to zero. Um, whereas to earn the same return, to earn that 10x in, in the same absolute dollar amounts, I might've had to, to have basically taken five or 10 times the capital and yield farmed and there, maybe I also have the risk of losing everything. I'm not sure. So it's basically much, much, much more existential risk for the same return. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that seems like a, a appropriate approach given the size and stuff you're, you're doing there. Um, are there any other projects you're sort of keeping your eye on from on the DeFi side? Or, well, actually, let me ask you this. Do you, do you see the promise of DeFi sort of the way that we saw the promise of Ethereum in 2017, like, do you think that's the next giant tidal wave in crypto? Or do you think it's just like everything all at once, Bitcoin, Ethereum, DeFi, the whole thing? So big picture, um, crypto cycles are not really not that different from traditional market cycles, where during a bull run, first you have quality of the rallies, and then towards the end, you have kind of the junk and the crap that rallies. And that's for very basic human psychological reasons. People's risk tolerance goes up, they get greedy, uh, they have a unit bias, they want, you know, once Bitcoin's at 30,000, it doesn't look like it's going to give us 100x in the next two years, right? So if you want 100x, you look elsewhere, you move down the, the kind of the value chain, um, and also you have teams that are able to easily raise money because everyone in crypto is rich and they use that money to market and promote and it brings in new retail. So, you know, I basically, I think the cycle at really high level is going to look similar to past ones, which is to say all coins will probably do pretty well for the rest of this bull cycle. Uh, and then similar to past cycles, when there is an inevitable major correction or crash, they'll most, many of them will probably get destroyed. They'll probably fall 95% to hundred percent. Many of them, not saying all of them. So I think the cycle is going to look very similar to that. Um, whether there's, whether there's sustained value. So, uh, you know, Ethereum did kind of do that as well during the 2018, 2019 bear market, it got crushed much harder than Bitcoin. It lost, uh, I, I forget the exact drawdown. What was it like 93%? Mm -hmm. Um, but it very much survived, right? It, it was it was thriving even during that time. While the price got crushed, the community didn't waver, the development didn't stop. It clearly survived the bear market, not just in terms of still being a, a tradable asset, but in terms of you know growing, right? Whereas of course there's a lot of zombie coins and zombie chains that you know they may still be tradable, but they didn't really survive the bear market. They've basically been abandoned. So sure. the question on DeFi is, you know, kind of will is DeFi too early is the question in my head, which is um, most apps in 2017, most ICOs were like the early internet startups of 1994. Almost every internet company that exists today, there was a version in 1994 that tried to launch. Someone tried to sell jeans over the internet in 1994. Someone tried to do streaming video and they all failed because it was too early. You didn't have the infrastructure. You didn't have the consumer base. It was, you know, they, they all failed. And 
2017, I was pretty confident that would be true of most applications, most apps. It was too early for dApps. We didn't have the, we didn't have layer two scaling solutions. We didn't have uh, enough consumers. You know, maybe someday you'll have decentralized Airbnb. It's still too early for that. Mm -hmm. So with DeFi, I'm not sure. It may be that this is like Ethereum in 2017, which is to say it's early, but it's not, you know, and there's going to be, you know, we're, we're seeing there's a lot of rough patches. There's constant hacks. There's constant losses. There's constant projects that go under. Uh, with that said, it does, you know, Maybe some of the projects, but here's the question, are, will, the, will there be at least one blue chip that is not Friendster, but it's Facebook? And I don't know. I think it's possible. Mm -hmm. So projects like Aave, like SNX, uh, like YFI, like uh, what, are some, what are some of the other blue chips? Uh, Compound, yeah, Compound yeah. Curve. Um, you know, I think there's real quality there. There's real teams. There's a real business model. Like th this is not, this is not bullshit. This is, mm -hmm. this is real value. The question is not, are they, th there's a real problem they're solving and they're solving it intelligently. The question in my mind is just, um, is this like that 1994 case where, for example, if they're coding in Solidity, Solidity and, and the current coding practices may not be strong enough to hold $20 billion of value. This may just be a, a broken foundation to be building on. And maybe in three years, we kind of rebuild the same things from scratch, kind of like building, you know, Amazon in post 2000, where you actually had, you know, broadband and a big consumer base. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it sort of begs the question too about Ethereum as a layer one platform. And, you know, I, I, I was goofing around with DeFi last night, actually, and I think I paid 100 bucks in gas or maybe 150 bucks in gas to do like a few simple things. And I was like, man, this is broken, or at least it needs some sort of significant reform before you can really adopt this technology at scale. Um, we, we are getting that this cycle, I think. So a lot of the DeFi projects either have announced or are about to announce that they're, they're uh, basically solving this in different ways. Some mm -hmm. of them will be migrating to or interoperable with chains like Solana that have much, much faster throughput. Um, some of them are moving to Matic or other layer two solutions on Ethereum. Some of them are launching their own chains. Uh, and, and probably by the end of the cycle, we'll have rough interoperability. We have things like Polkadot launching, um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping ETH 2.0 launches by the end of the cycle. I think I think it likely will. So my guess is the interoperability will be rough. There'll be some problems with composability, but we will have it. So what I what I mean to say is that every app on Ethereum will have the option of migrating to a very fast other chain while not totally leaving Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Like maybe ETH is still a reserve currency in that DeFi world, even if it's running on Solana. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes, I saw somebody tweet the other day, like we're still early enough to have done layer one transactions on Ethereum. Like I, I imagine if it continues to scale and grow, like you said, there'll be so many sort of side chains or layer two solutions or other kind of scaling mechanisms that we'll look back and be like, I can't believe we did it like that. Yeah. 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 I, well, so this is an open question, I think, within the Ethereum community. The Bitcoin community is basically settled on the idea that Bitcoin layer one is a settlement chain. Mm -hmm. And that, that, by the way, is I strongly believe in that. That's the only thing. Bitcoin is just a horribly, horribly inefficient payment rail. Like it makes yep. no sense as a payment rail. It, it's a decent settlement, settlement rail. So that's how it wins. And then you get, you get your infinite scalability via a mix of other layers that have different optimizations. Ethereum, I think there's still ongoing debate about this and struggle. That could work for Ethereum too. There's no reason they couldn't adopt that mindset. There's definitely a, uh, you know, the whole ETH 2.0 is a little bit 
moving, not like, like kind of refusing to do that it, in my mind. It's like Ethereum, um, and, and we'll see how this plays out. It may be that um, the Ethereum 1.0, that Ethereum 2.0 launches, but, but it effectively becomes much more like Bitcoin, where you have one main chain that is used as a settlement layer, and then everything else is effectively a layer two, or, or apps are explicitly using layer twos. Uh, and that the whole, and you're not really, it's not an Ethereum of many chains that are in parallel. It's really more like one settlement chain and then a bunch of side chains in, mm -hmm. in how it gets used. You know, I'm not sure. I think the Ethereum community is unwilling at this point to firmly decide on a vision, which isn't yeah. unreasonable. You know, um, it's fine keeping your options open. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of 2017 when there is still this, like, I, I think back to 2017, and it seems like Ethereum is where Bitcoin was in 2017, where, you know, there were these debates in the Bitcoin community about scaling, and you had all of these hard forks. And then, you know, there was all of this drama about BCH and, um, I guess, a few other scaling debates. And there, there wasn't really like this clear narrative the way there is now. Like we're a, we're hard money, we're a store of value, and I think that's done a ton to improve uh, Bitcoin's position and their sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, sales pitch. But Ethereum is still kind of struggling through that, and we're we're seeing that in real time, which is really interesting. Like, well, what is Ethereum's so? primary use case, like how are we going to fix these scaling debates? And like you said, all of this remains open and it's subject to vigorous debate right now within the community. Um, and I'm a little surprised we haven't seen, I guess, hard forks or, you know, a little, little more contentious debates in the Ethereum community. Maybe that's because it's a little more centralized than, than Bitcoin, but, or maybe we're just so early in the cycle that we'll, we'll see that down the road. I think part of the difference is um, people who disagreed with Ethereum basically ICO'd, right? So some of the mm -hmm. Ethereum co-founders like Gavin, he did Polkadot, uh, Charles Hoskinson did Cardano, mm -hmm. um, and and you have, you, have, you have many other, right? You have like Near Protocol, uh, more recent ones, I mean. Um, so you didn't, ha you know, I, I think uh, it's a, it's been a pressure valve, right? If you don't like Ethereum's vision, you leave the Ethereum community, raise a bunch of money and try to compete as Near did. Um, and I say they don't like the vision, maybe that's not a fair statement about them, but they're directly competing as a layer one. So I, I think in practice it is. Um, whereas with Bitcoin, um, partly because it's proof of work, well, obviously a lot of these changes are at this moment proof of work. The Bitcoin community was less pro ICO, so it was harder for a competitor to raise money. You had a much older user base, uh, older meaning more entrenched, larger wealth effects. So like the Ethereum community in mid-2017, many people had arrived to it in the last year. You didn't have a ton of people with this kind of massive five-year buy-in. They've been mining for five years. They've been, they've been accumulating ETH for five years. Um, so basically, instead of forking, it was easier to compete by just launching something new. Whereas with Bitcoin, you know, if you're Roger Ver, well, you own a huge amount of Bitcoin. You've been a Bitcoin proselytizer for like, you know, seven years at that point. You're going to try to move Bitcoin. You're not going to just kind of launch something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, I suppose. And yeah, to your point, I mean, I guess ETH was the first ICO. So it makes sense that people sort of forking off use that mechanism instead of like a hard fork. Yeah, not, I don't think it was technically the first, but it was definitely one of the, uh, it was definitely the first big one. Sure. Uh, you did it. I think MasterCoin predated it by a good amount. Ah, uh, that's true. Okay. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, there were a few before Ethereum, but Ethereum was, was you could say it was the first that mattered. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, do you, uh, well, uh, on the sort of 
issue of 2020 now. I, I know last night there were some important elections in Georgia um, and we're all sort of still waiting the results. By the time this is out, I'm sure they'll be finalized. It looks like the Democrats are going to take both seats and thereby control uh, the Senate and Congress generally. I, I mean, as somebody who's managing a fund and keeping a close eye on these sorts of things, do you have an initial knee-jerk reaction about that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad we're touching on this because I would also love your take, you know, and, and, uh, and extending this to the regulatory side as, mm -hmm. a, as a lawyer would love your, you know, perspective on this. Um, so I'll, I'll give mine first, but, you know, definitely would love to hear your, your monologue take on this. Um, so first on the Senate, um, uh, I didn't have a, a, a terribly strong view heading into it. Um, so I, I guess there's two questions. One is, how did we think and do we think the market reacts? And then what do we think the actual long-term implications are? On the first, the market uh, reading Wall Street punditry, it seemed like it wasn't going to have a huge impact. Um, and that, you know, we didn't see a huge impact. Things like S&P sold off a tiny bit, but it was less, you know, it was, I don't know if it got down even 1%. Gold and silver first were up a little, then down a little. You know, there, there just wasn't a huge impact. Um, the, and I think the reason for that is you have some people who think it's inflationary because the Dems are going to do more stimulus. You have other people who think it's deflationary because the Dems are going to soak the rich and raise taxes. And, you know, and it's unclear right now when the Democrats take office, which which is the higher priority and what are they going to do first? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't you know. What is the democratic agenda in the first year? Is it is it focused more on stimulus or more on uh, you know more on soak the rich kind of stuff? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, long term, I'll say it scares me because uh, you have people. You know, we recently had the Rowan Gray um, AOC uh, kind of legislation proposed a series of legislative proposals that are very anti crypto. They're very pro surveillance state, and. When they were proposed it a month ago or so, or two months ago, it was fringe, and there was very little support, and there's no chance of it passing. With a full Democratic majority, I don't know how this evolves. And I would say there's a bigger threat from the left than the right. I say this, by the way, as someone who voted for Biden, and while I don't, I don't like to think of myself as partisan and falling into a camp, I'm definitely more in the Democratic side overall, uh, at least given the current U.S. politics. So I say this as someone, you know, more on the left, but um, the Democrats certainly scare me more than the Republicans uh, on crypto. Just, yeah. it's much more of a nanny state mentality. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess both parties have their own approach to regulating crypto. I suppose on the Democratic side, it's like, well, we need to protect consumers and we need to ensure that you know, banks aren't going crazy with crypto and that scammers aren't basically fleecing retail investors out of cash like we saw with the ICOs. And I remember back in like the fallout from the 2017 ICO heyday, there were a lot of congressional hearings. And I remember in particular listening to one with Elizabeth Warren and she was uber critical of the ICOs and crypto generally. She, I think she regarded it with very high suspicion. So it seems like the far left has kind of continued that thread with, like you said, the AOC, Rowan Gray, and kind of the squad taking aim at um, some of these stable coins. And it's interesting too, because you have Brian Brooks, the former chief legal officer of Coinbase now, who's the, the head of the OCC, the, the highest banking regulator in the federal government, um, and the, and Brian, in his short tenure at the OCC, has pushed through a lot of favorable crypto regulation um, to allow banks to hold it in custody, and now most recently to allow them to use stable coins. So, you know, you sort of see that you you sort of think that well, 
the Dems might push back on that and get Brian out or at least, you know, slow him down a little bit on that stuff to focus more on regulating big banks and ensuring that, um, you know, those are reined in. On the other hand, you know, Trump was no friend to crypto either. He had that notorious tweet about him not liking Bitcoin. And so I think the Republicans are more approaching it from kind of the terrorism, um, financing side of things. Treasury, we saw recently be passed through a bunch of uh, anti-crypto rules, or at least increasing the regulatory burdens on regulated exchanges and things, which is still in process and may be rolled back via the Biden administration. So I had uh, Peter Van Valkenburg on maybe a month or so ago, and his point, and I think the sort of tack that Coin Center takes is, we want to remain nonpartisan on this as much as we can, because as soon as you know one party takes up the banner of crypto, inevitably the other party will try to crush it or you know make it a political issue. So hopefully we can just kind of keep in the background <laughs> to some extent. I guess the higher Bitcoin goes and the more attention we get, the harder that becomes. Um, and particularly in an election year when you're seeing a bunch of new uh, parties take office and new politicians take office, maybe they'll want to try to cut their teeth on taking this on. But um, and and then there's this like big tech component. There's all of these really kind of interesting issues that are at play here. Um, but I do think both parties sort of hate Facebook right now. And Libra was probably the worst thing to happen to crypto <laughs> um, <laughs> in the last two years. So that, yeah, that was a bit of a rambling answer, but I do think that it's hard to say and that I'm optimistic that, you know, Biden as sort of a moderate um, comes in and tries not to rock the apple cart too much. I, I have seen, you know, they're obviously like the Biden administration appears to be pretty slow moving and thoughtful with with their regard to their approach to almost everything. So, you know, hopefully that continues. Um, what do you make of like, uh, you know, Sam from FTX being one of the top donators to the Biden campaign? Do you think that'll have any sort of long-term impact on the administration's approach towards cryptocurrency? Um, so it, direct impact, I, I doubt it. There's a lot of big contributors. Uh, and as you said, a, a risk is that if any one party becomes viewed as captured by crypto or pro-crypto, the other party naturally is incentivized to become a foil. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I doubt there's any direct impact. Um, the reality, like here, here's the existential concern. Crypto is the most attractive political whipping boy we've basically ever seen. It's a, it's a very small number of very wealthy people who are mostly dislikable in one way or another. So it's a lot of, you know, it, like from the left's perspective, it's heavily over, overweight white male. It's, uh, it, does, it doesn't feel like in crypto, we like talking about how it's the most fair thing ever. It certainly that doesn't fit the left's narrative, right? It's not it's not fair in the sense that um, oh, some computer science geek in 2010 now has a billion dollars. Like, and in crypto, it's funny we people sometimes tweet things like, you know, people say hodling's easy. It's not. It's stressful. It's like it, nowhere else in the world do you get to make millions of dollars by not by not clicking a button. 
right? It's almost an insulting idea, right? Like talk to any any immigrant who came to the US and has somehow made it to having a million dollars and you say, man, let me tell you how I had to make a million dollars. I had to do nothing for two years through a bear market. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a joke, right? So attacking the crypto rich, it's, it's a really juicy political target from the left. Mm -hmm. um, and then even from the right, because the because crypto as as yet, we're amateurs when it comes to lobbying. So I love Coin Center. I we've donated. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Jerry's and Peter's and uh, and for the memes nearage, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, no, but those guys do great work 100% seriously. Um, I, I and, and Peter and Jerry are brilliant. I, I learn every time I, I read their writing. Um, with that said, um, this is, you know, we're, we're at the JV we're at the, at the JV table right now. And mm -hmm. when you think about the lobbying that banks have, right? So when you think about entrenched interests, so the hope has always been that we capture the existing elites. There was never a path that crypto people would fast enough become the elites and overtake the existing elites. We had to capture the existing elites. That's how every revolution happens. It's only allowed to happen if enough of the existing elites basically get bought in. So it seems like that is certainly happening, right? Fidelity is a crypto custodian. JP Morgan is now doing you know, has has crypto initiatives, as do many, many of the big banks. Um, but still, if Wall Street decided collectively that it was in their interest to promote really anti-crypto regulation, like, like, and I don't mean at the margin, I mean, that was a top priority for them. The amount of money and, and firepower they could throw at it is a thousand X what crypto does. I mean, half of the Treasury Department are ex Goldman Sachs, ex JP Morgan, right? Mm -hmm. It's it, the Treasury Department is a who's who of Goldman alumni. So, you know, we, we don't have... Um, and, 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 you know, we're getting a little bit of that with someone like a Brian Brooks, who's ex-Coinbase, but it, it's it's junior varsity. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's a risk that um, wealth inequality is probably only going to be a growing topic. Uh, and, and crypto, it could be a whipping boy for either party, but it's more easily won for the left because there's just something so fundamentally illiberal about this massive, massive wealth inequality that doesn't seem and, – and the libertarian streak in crypto, sure. uh, right, is, is very naturally an enemy of the left. Whereas, look, Trump tweeted against Bitcoin. He said he didn't like it, but he didn't do anything about it. That, mm -hmm. That's kind of the – and I'm, you know me. I'm no fan of Trump, uh, right? But And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows half – you know, probably – Two-thirds of my tweets are crypto education. One-third is, is bashing Trump as a wannabe despot. <laughs> right. uh, and that's not – I actually don't view that as political, by the way. I'm not anti-Republican at all. Uh, there's there's wonderful Republicans, um, and there's wonderful conservatives and wonderful libertarians. I was anti-Trump as a wannabe dictator populist. Uh, mm -hmm. That was why I, I didn't like him. So, okay, with that aside, when conservatives and Republicans don't like something, that they don't immediately assume that means government should ban it. Whereas on the left, that is kind of the propensity, right? Elizabeth Warren says, or Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say, we don't like that ATMs charge people $4 for a $100 withdrawal in this area. And Republicans would say, we don't like that either. But it's the Democrats who say, let's regulate that, sure. you know? So I think the Democrats are more of an existential risk. At the moment, there's nothing on the horizon that's super scary. So it's not like um, I have no special knowledge of upcoming you know, Biden administration legislation. It's more like what could happen over the next year or two that scares me. Yeah, no, and I, I think our best argument as an industry and the one I find most compelling and I think would resonate on the left as well is listen, there's a lot of interesting innovation going on in this area and we're a really young industry and we have the potential to give, you know, to bank the unbanked, to make poor people have access to financial systems that only previously were accessible to the super wealthy. 
So I think, you know, as far as any sort of broader industry narrative, that would be the one I'd immediately cling to is saying, no, don't pass regulation because the more regulation you pass will, will kill us. And you just need to sort of let this, let this seed grow. Um, and you know, that, uh, that probably is more of sort of a conservative talking point, but hopefully the left can understand that and view that as like, if, if you foster this, it could actually bring about some social change that would allow um, maybe some change in the inequality structure that we see in the country. But I agree with you. I mean, if you look at like the, the, the 30 Bitcoiners who have a billion dollars who are super active on Twitter, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> who are yeah. these guys? What are they talking about? This isn't the sort of liberal agenda we're, we're hoping to get through Congress right now. Right, right. It's kind of the classic difference. So I, I buy many of those arguments, and certainly those are the ones that that are among the arguments we want to be making. That crypto is a you know leveler of the playing field and, and open finance and all that. But that's not how the left left views freedom or views fairness. Right. It's not about equality of opportunity. It's about equality of outcomes. Right. It's not about um, equal opportunity. You know. Yeah. Freedom. From for from when you and I say it, we we also mean freedom from government. That's not what AOC means or Elizabeth Warren means when she says freedom. She means freedom from companies. She means freedom from uh, really anyone other than the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, that this is one of the reasons I voted for Biden. Um, and I was sort of, you know me, I'm active on Twitter as well. And I'm sort of, I have the same views on Trump that you do. Um, but I think ultimately, as I've grown older, I've probably shifted more kind of right down the middle or even a touch conservative, but I like Biden. I, I really liked Obama um, because they sort of, to me, they're very sort of thoughtful moderates. Um, and that was the one reason I, I really liked Biden. I liked Bloomberg too, um, which I got a lot of shit for, but I do think he's sort of in the same vein that, okay, we, we just need somebody with a, with a calm hand to sort of guide us back to the middle of the road after like a really wild four years under Trump. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm hopeful that Biden will do a good job of both controlling the far right as he does controlling the far left and, you know, giving some concessions to the squad and the other sort of far left components of, of the liberal party of the democratic party, but for the most part, just sort of keep things on an even keel on an even path and um, not rock the apple cart too much. And I think for the most part, that would be good for crypto generally is if we, you know, just kind of fly under the radar and keep building. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, well, for conservatives in general, no government is good government. And by no government, I don't mean anarchy. I mean the absence of activity, right? So like Wall Street generally likes divided government because the hope is that there's gridlock and that means no no bad regulations, nothing harmful. Uh, crypto, 100% true. You know, Satoshi in the very beginning um, said, I, forget, I, I can't quote him exactly, uh, but it, it was someone, someone commented something like, um, should like we want to get more attention we want to pick a fight with governments and satoshi said no we don't we want to stay under the radar for as long as possible and he actually told wikileaks don't uh wikileaks started accepting bitcoin when in in like early 2011 i think and satoshi said this is dangerous for us we don't we don't want to be in government crosshairs too early um now obviously a lot has happened since 2011 
it's still somewhat early. Uh, crypto is still owned by, you know, probably less than 10% of Americans, probably less than 1% of the world. Um, just in the last year, we've started seeing Wall Street billionaires getting meaningful positions. You've had a lot of people like Stevie Cohen and Pete Berger Fortress who've had have had stakes uh, four years ago. But for most of them, it was a small allocation for their net worth. You know, it wasn't something they were going to going to really, really fight for. Now you're seeing people like Chamath. There's a I, I don't know if this is true, but um, very plausible that Zuckerberg has a few billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, which probably isn't going to make anyone hearing that happy. You know, do we really <laughs> right. want Zuckerberg getting richer if Bitcoin 10Xs? But the point is a lot of the establishment now has very non-trivial exposure. And that's good for crypto. That means we have powerful people fighting against state-level attacks, uh, and including regulatory attacks. Um, but it's still early. It's still, uh, I still fear that we are a populist whipping boy. I still fear that Elizabeth Warren types see this as a super, I mean, one, I think she would, she believes what she's saying. Uh, mm -hmm. I disagree with her on most things, but I think she has integrity, uh, at least more than most politicians, not saying she's a saint. Um, but, you know, if the, if wealth inequality continues increasing, if we fall into a recession and asset prices and we're getting, basically, if we have a recession, uh, a stagflation period, then the Elizabeth Warren types, the easiest target in the world are are the crypto rich. And whatever arguments we make, it, it's such an easy populist win that appeals to the 90% of Americans who who don't own any. And, and of course, even of those 10%, most didn't get rich off it, right? Mm -hmm. The average American who bought crypto probably bought it over six thousand dollars um which is, is is great right now but I, i'm just saying it's not like you have 10 percent of americans who who are crypto rich you know you have 10 percent of people who maybe bought a bitcoin when it was six thousand and are happy about it or a bitcoin when it was nineteen thousand and then sold when it was 12 and bought in again when it was 30 you know so we've really got a couple percentage points of americans who have a big exposure to crypto and are really grateful for that exposure and we have a lot of americans who are going to hate the crypto bros mm-hmm yeah, no, it's true. It's sort of like the the evolution of the tech bro meme. <laughs> um, yeah, except at least the tech bros build things everyone uses and loves, right? Mm -hmm. As much as we hate Zuckerberg, we use Facebook. As much as we hate social media, you know, we're on like it's funny. We see people all the time attacking Twitter on Twitter, attacking <laughs> Facebook on Facebook, right? And it's such a, a funny or or attacking Amazon. And you say, when was the last time you bought an Amazon product? And it was, oh, six hours ago. I had toilet paper airdropped to my house, you know? So, it, you know, people may make fun of the tech bros and the VCs, but the reality is they built stuff that everyone loves and uses and sees the value in. Whereas um, for crypto today, that's not really true, right? Not that many people, I mean, the number of active daily users of crypto is, is almost trivial. So... Mm -hmm. You know, you, they don't have that. It, we, like, if someone says, "Ari, um, I see crypto's created this big wealth inequality. I see these crypto bros. Tell me how crypto has added value to my life or the life of anyone I know." Well, I have to start bringing up pretty tiny examples from Venezuela, from South America, and and they're small examples, and they're not examples that the average American relates to. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto-savvy taxpayers are using Node40 to determine the taxes they owe, or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node40 in your corner. With Node40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. 
My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. The Crypto.com Exchange offers a suite of retail and institutional trading services where users can tap into deep liquidity, low fees, and the best execution prices. On the Crypto.com Exchange, you can enjoy up to 50% off selected cryptocurrencies and mine the hottest DeFi tokens in one click. What's more, when you join the Crypto.com Exchange, you get paid a 2% deposit bonus. Not enough? You can earn up to 10% APR and interest by staking CRO on the exchange and join their trading battles to earn attractive rewards. Sign up for the Crypto.com Exchange now to enjoy everything they have to offer. Join Gemini, the number one cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Gemini is the go-to platform for beginners and sophisticated investors alike looking to build their crypto empire. It's available in more than 50 countries with industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. You'll get access to the best performing assets of the decade, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. Schedule your reoccurring buys on the Gemini mobile app to steadily build your position and go long and strong on crypto. Open a free account today in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully. If you do, you get 10 bucks in Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com bully. What do you make of, and so I find this to be a really interesting topic, is the um, centralized versus decentralized exchanges. And the reason I thought of that is I, as, as we're sitting here, I just got an email from Shapeshift. And this is news this morning that broke that they're basically pivoting to become a DEX, so a decentralized exchange instead of a centralized exchange. And it says, the email says, goodbye, KYC. And like my, as, an, as an attorney, sort of my stomach hurts when I see that line. But I do think that, you know, the more the government pushes on these regulatory issues, the more you're going to see systems being developed to, to sort of account for those and to try to manage those regulatory issues. And I don't know if that pushes innovation offshore or if it pushes it sort of to an unregulated space. And both of those might be bad outcomes. And I know a lot of the comments to this recent FinCEN rule, or rule have kind of made that argument, which I agree with. But what do you make of the trend in like the Uniswaps and the decentralized exchanges of the world, do you think it's possible that crypto can just be like, well, we don't really care because we're going to create this system that's basically you can't regulate? So there's a lot to unwrap there. So first, uh, first, I'm a huge fan of Eric Voorhees, the founder of Shapeshift. I think mm-hmm. he really personifies kind of the crypto ideals. And it's painful to me seeing Bitcoin maximalists attack him as like anti-crypto because he, he isn't a pure Bitcoin maximalist. Um, Eric is to, to me what the idea Bitcoin is an asset, right? What what hopefully we're united by is a vision, a vision of freedom, and freedom means uh, a free market, right? For for and and it means that people can make mistakes and make decisions, and market forces win. So like I, you know, when people ask if if a retail friend or family member or anyone asks me how to invest in crypto, I say buy Bitcoin. It's actually the only asset I'm comfortable recommending on a five year horizon. And I always say, by the way. 
it could fail. Like I can, I can give you a list of 10 ways it could fail. So don't put all your money in it. But I, I, I do think Bitcoin's a great investment and it's the only thing I'm comfortable at recommending long-term. So uh, to me, Bitcoin is by far the leading asset to fulfill the vision we share. But if a better asset came along, and I don't mean something 10% better, I mean something categorically 100x better that, that was more secure, more decentralized, more censorship resistant. Well, my allegiance is not to an asset. My allegiance is to the goal, is to the vision, is to bringing freedom to mankind, right? So um, the idea of, of you know allegiance to a financial asset makes no sense. And by the way, a bunch of Bitcoin core developers agree with me on this. They, they, they openly say, we don't think there's ever going to be something better than Bitcoin holistically. But if there was, yeah, like, you know. Um, so, okay, that's a little tangent because there were some fights between Voorhees and Maximalist on Twitter where he got, he got attacked. Um, but Voorhees continues to build things that actually facilitate the crypto mission. And that's really important because Bitcoin three years ago and maybe even today is not censorship resistant. It's not. Uh, as a protocol, it may be, but that protocol runs over an internet that is easily censored. Buying Bitcoin realistically um, for most people meant using a centralized party that is AMLKYC'd or that may just scam you and take your money. It's a centralized counterparty. Either it's regulated or it's not, and it's not clear which you know which you prefer. Pick your poison, right? So um, Bitcoin today is not fulfilling its vision because it lacks the infrastructure to. It's a censorship-resistant protocol sitting on a censored protocol uh, and and regaining access to it requires going through sent, you know uh, permissioned intermediaries. So the work that people like Eric are doing to enable DEXs, like DEXs are such a critical part of the vision. The ability to uh, permissionlessly use Bitcoin and purchase it and sell it is central to the Bitcoin mission. Um, and obviously DEXs, the initial ones were mostly built on Ethereum for ERC-20. Now we're starting to get interoperability from many different ways, whether it's the serum model or whether it's uh, wrapping or swapping. Um, you know, now we have wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum, so you can kind of use it that way. Although the, the way, you know, and it's Bitcoin is wrapped right now, most wrapped Bitcoin is via a centralized party. There's a few attempts that are probably too early in my view. They're very risky to have decentralized wrapping of Bitcoin. That's the home run eventually. Long term, the home run is to have true interoperability across chain without a centralized party that lets you convert any crypto asset to any crypto asset. And more of real world assets are going to be crypto assets. You'll be able to convert your real estate directly into Bitcoin without relying any uh, intermediary. And that is critical to, to what we're all hoping to achieve and what's and Satoshi's vision. Without that, Bitcoin doesn't fulfill its mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I think about that a lot because you're right, the, the exchanges offer sort of this choke point. Um, and that's been good, I think, for regulatory peace, because I think a lot of regulators can look at this space and be like, okay, you have something like Monero, where if I send you 100 Monero, it's basically impossible to track that or to view those details. But ultimately, if you get Monero, you have to take it somewhere and convert it to cash and then get that cash to your bank account. So at that point, that's when we're going to capture the, the KYC process and we're going to you know, let people basically play within the bounds of the system. But once they try to leave it, that's when we're going to make sure we're knowing who they are and what they're doing, et cetera. But if you break that sort of fragile trust, then kind of all hell breaks loose because you know, regulators are going to say, wait a minute, if, if there are ways that people can 
get outside of this system and then we can't have any sort of visibility into that, I have a feeling regulators are going to find that to be problematic. So I, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, oh, this is exciting. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, does this ultimately like break the peace that regulators and the crypto community have developed over the years? And um, but on the other hand, I suppose there isn't really any sort of decentralized on ramp yet. So maybe that's where we find peace is, okay, if you want to get to cash, you basically have to like go through Coinbase or you could go through like local Bitcoins or something. But like you said, that that's very risky in its own way. So I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll, time will tell on this, but part of me is like the decentralized exchanges, the Uniswaps and others could ultimately lead to like a full scale war between crypto and regulators. And that's a little speculate. That's a lot of speculation on my part, but something I've been kind of watching and thinking about. Yeah. I, so I, all great points. Um, and I, I think you're totally, I think everything you said is right. Uh, all, all of the, you know, you, you highlighted a few key dynamics that as long as regulators have something they can regulate, maybe they don't kind of worry about the fringe as much. Um, so I think what we're going to see for the foreseeable future is kind of what we've seen, which is a bifurcation. And this is true in traditional markets as well. So actually here's an analogy. And I, I, when this, when I heard this, it kind of blew my mind. It just makes it so obvious, but, but such an important concept. So with the Chinese great firewall, it is almost effortless to circumnavigate it if you're in China. You basically buy a VPN. And you know China is spending so much money and going to so much great effort to censor internet searches that don't use VPNs. Why? And what when when they, they and and China could do more. So now, you know, they're talking about now rolling out a new internet protocol where which would give them more direct control. But even 10 years ago, they could have done a lot more to stamp out VPN usage and they didn't really try. And the explanation, and I wasn't really sure on why, like, like they're, they're smart enough, they could be doing a lot more if, they, if they're serious about this firewall stuff. And the answer is really simple and so obvious, which is it's a pressure valve. So China's goal is not absolute censorship. China's goal is to control what most of the people see most of the time. And there are going to be elites in China who are willing to spend a little bit extra, who are willing to endure a bit of extra latency to, to be able to read the New York Times, to be able to use Google and see Tiananmen Square. And that's actually useful because um, if, if the Communist Party didn't allow that, you would have a very angry, very powerful faction bristling, right? Mm -hmm. Saying like, like you know, if you're, the, if you're a billionaire in China, you're not going to accept censored internet. Right. So what China basically did is said, for political purposes, we don't need to exact perfectly censor everything. We need 90% of people to see we, what we want them to see 90% of the time. And then we're going to make it just require a little bit of money, a little bit of effort to get around our censorship on purpose. And the same is generally true if a financial controls of basically everything. There are always elites, including senators, including uh, you know powerful people who are well connected, who don't want the laws to apply to them. And they will always find ways for that statement to be true, including by working with senators and congressmen to put loopholes into the code, right? So you think about taxes, right? Um, the way every, every, every tax system works is you want a, a you want most taxes collected from people most of the time, but, but it's not that you want this, it's that what happens is that the well-connected elites always work with politicians to insert loopholes so that they don't have to pay taxes. And if that wasn't true, those elites would kick out the people currently in power to make sure it's true. So if you're the if you're if you're Congress, you want that to be true because that's how you keep your seat. You kind of get it both ways. You collect sufficient taxes to run the country, and you get to keep your seat because you keep the elites happy enough. So I, I, um, 
what you highlight is that there could be a breaking point where uh, too much activity is happening outside of the regulator purview, where it's not this kind of 90-10 split, where it's more like 50-50, and where the regulators feel that it's in their interest to really, you know, if, if for example, um, Iran and North Korea and other enemy states are making too extensive use of crypto to get around uh, something I like saying is, and this is this is a stylized statement, but SWIFT is the military wing of the Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. When the U.S. government wants to basically shut down a country and ensure it's a failed state, we kick them out of the global monetary system by basically removing their access to global banking via SWIFT. And it's incredibly effective. Every country we've ever done it to basically becomes a failed state. Uh, and cryptocurrency, we're already seeing Iran and North Korea use crypto at the margin to circumnavigate that. Uh, circumvent it. Um, and we don't know to what scale, by the way. Uh, so we know they're doing it. We we know North Korea was mining Monero, for example. We know Iran has done Bitcoin transactions. That's public. We don't know the scale. I don't know to what degree. How I don't know how significant this is. Congress knows this. The NSA knows this. And they don't like it. Um, and so that does produce this kind of ongoing tension. Uh, and this could be politicized. For example, if Democrats control everything uh, in terms of government and Republicans are evading campaign finance rules by using Bitcoin on DEXs, for example, and that makes the Democrats fear that they'll lose the next election, well, that becomes a very, very compelling reason to try to stamp it out. Mm-hmm. I think the way this ends up is um, at least you may have, I, I, at some point in the next 10 years, I'm almost certain that many countries will, will in some form ban crypto. I hope that does not include the United States and other Western developed democracies. I think China will almost inevitably effectively ban public cryptocurrencies within the next 10 years. Uh, They'll first finish rolling out their own. When I say ban, um, it may be like in a great firewall way. They may still allow 10% of elites to use it, but they'll do it in such a way that uh, most of the country cannot evade the government's kind of panopticon state. You know, only the really politically connected, important elites who have, you know, who can hire someone with deep tech know-how, all of that. Um, so the, 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 f- the existential fear would be that maybe the U.S. is on the wrong side of that. DEX's crypto will be used. It will survive that attack. Um, but in what form? You know, so I don't particularly want a world where cryptocurrency is like, um, like the elites in China. Well, I mean, let's, that's, the analogy still works. I don't want a world where 90% of people, for practical reasons, accept government censorship, right? I want a world where you know it takes very, very little effort to have monetary freedom. Not a world where, uh, yeah, maybe maybe you and I can still do it, but we're we're the two percent elite. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I want everyone everyone to have that kind of censorship resistance. Yeah, and I, I suppose there's also this interesting question too of, well, not only do governments censor, but large corporations can censor. And we've seen that more and more. And I think it's kind of a a talking point on both sides of the political aisle recently is you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook and these other giant corporate monstrosities that are, you know, doing quite a bit to damage the privacy of individual users and Americans. And you know, that's, it's mainly for business purposes, like Facebook likes to know a lot about us, because it helps them sell better ads. And then that makes them more money. But at the end of the day, you know, if there's a leak, or if they're sharing our information with other corporations, then you start to, you know, get some privacy issues and things like that. So, you know, back to this, like, well, which party hates crypto, maybe the Democrats might actually embrace that part of it, like under kind of the 
California CCPA guys or the GDPR idea where it's like, well, privacy is important to the average consumer um, and we should try to come up with ways and systems and mechanisms to protect user privacy. But I suppose back to your point, and maybe I'm arguing with myself here, is that I think the Democrats would probably prefer to have some sort of regulation to do that and not some sort of um, Wild West technology that's decentralized and has a whole bunch of other issues with it as well. I don't, none of the privacy pushes like the European GPDR, that has nothing to do with protecting consumers. It's all a fight for power between companies and government. So in the US, you know, now we're having similar conversations now about breaking up big tech. That's not because Facebook is abusing user data. Our politicians don't care at all about that. What our politicians care about is that Facebook has access to better granular data on the citizenry than Congress does. Mm-hmm. And, and the concern is that is Zuckerberg more powerful than any 10 senators combined? Uh, and how can that be used? You know, so um, the pressure to limit corporate use of data is entirely about that. It's entirely about not allowing corp- corporations to become more powerful than, than governments. Um, I do think that trend is likely to continue. Uh, this idea of you know, these giant multinational semi-sovereign companies that are more powerful than many countries around the world people get it now. Um, I think it took a long time for, for that to kind of sink in for politicians. It's such a, you know, it's in many ways a fairly novel idea. It, it never really existed. I mean, you had people, even like a Rockefeller, while immensely powerful and certainly more powerful than politicians, um, any, any one politician maybe, there were still limits, uh, partly because of the physical geography. So, you know, old giant companies were mostly industrial, which were entirely subject to government wins, whims on confiscation, on local taxation, on local regulation. So someone like a Rockefeller, he had to win over local politicians through bribery, coercion, um, you know, promoting uh, his favorite candidates to ensure that he had local power and he had to do it locality by locality. Today, Facebook doesn't really have a location, right? And their users are global and um, the government isn't even like, and you know, VPNing is so, it's, it's, it's funny, uh, I'm at this moment in Costa Rica and I've been using a VPN, not for anything crypto related. In Costa Rica, I actually, I, I don't need to use a VPN for anything crypto. I'm using a VPN to watch, to use my own Netflix and Amazon account to watch, <laughs> to stream video, which is hilarious when you think about it. So VPN usage has become so common that it's expected that we use it. And again, I'm, I'm not even doing it to like watch something I'm not paying for. I'm using it to watch my own Netflix and Amazon content. Um, so governments are really slow at, at technology, uh, basically. And, and we, we live in such a fast moving tech world that average consumer tools are able in some cases to evade governments. Um, so I, I think there's, it's, it's that battle. Uh, mm. And these, these giant multinational companies like Amazon and Facebook are existential threats to government power to, you know, I mean, it's being talked about very openly by political parties, right? The Republicans are saying they lost the election because of Facebook and the Democrats, if they had lost, would have said the same, mm-hmm. that it, that Zucker, that that's how powerful Facebook is. It decides U.S. election results. Well, yeah, I mean, they said it in 2016, right? It was the disinformation campaign that, that the Russians perpetrated on Facebook. Yeah, so both sides are saying it from right. slightly different angles, but that's how powerful Facebook, and and that's with both sides acknowledging that whatever biases Facebook has, they weren't explicitly trying to rig an election, mm-hmm. right? Like no one has claimed that Zuckerberg categorically tried to rig the election. They're saying, yeah, maybe he's, you know, both sides claim he's biased in favor of the other, uh, but it's, you know, we're talking subtle effects here. It's worth asking the question: What if Bezos, Zuckerberg, and you know, pick two or three other tech titans explicitly? tried to change the political party in power, 
pretty clear they'd succeed, I think, right? Yeah. Pretty clear they have that power to decide basically every aspect of U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's kind of scary. I mean, I guess the the antitrust laws exist to break up large corporations in the event of, you know, monopolies or something, but this is a whole different kind of It is. <laughs> yeah, it, that was meant to break up economic monopolies to protect mm-hmm. consumers. This is the first time in history, and by this, I, I really mean the last 20 years. This isn't a brand new phenomenon, but it's, it's, I think it's the first time it's being so openly discussed over the last four years. Um, it, you know, yeah, now we're at a state where we may need to break up giant multinationals or they threaten countries. Now, I, by the way, I'm not advocating for that because it's not clear to me who I would prefer to rule us. I don't, I'm not a corporatist. I'm not a corporatist. I do not want giant multinational companies running the world, but I also don't like the current government. So mm-hmm. it, you know, I, frankly, I like fights. I like um, my, and, and this is, I, 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 I'm really surprised when crypto people are basically like monarchists or, or uh, feudalists. It, it's weird. There's some self-described cypherpunks or libertarians, including some very, very, actually I'll name one because um, he, he calls himself, uh, well, I won't use any terminology because I'm not sure which words he would object to, but a personal idol of mine, a guy who is one of those brilliant people on the planet who I learned a huge, huge amount from in my early crypto days is Nick Zabo. Mm-hmm. Nick Zabo, who some people think is Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, I think he, he probably isn't, but he may have been involved early on. Um, Zabo is, you know, God tier to me, right? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he is smarter than me in every way. He knows more than I do about everything. So let me say that first, right? I worship Zabo and his political views are so bizarre to me because basically his, as I understand it, I'm not trying to mischaracterize him. His view is uh, social media bad, mainstream media bad. They're trying to manipulate us. Therefore, I want to put my trust in basically an all-powerful president. And to me, that's so antithetical to the premise of Nakamoto consensus and the premise of crypto. The premise of crypto is not A is good, B is bad, let's put our faith in B. The premise of crypto is don't trust anything or anyone, have as much competition as possible, have every miner fighting tooth and nail to include a block in the blockchain. That's how you avoid censorship. You don't avoid censorship by giving the right person the keys to the blockchain. You Mm -hmm. avoid censorship by providing economic incentives for everyone to compete to include a transaction on the chain. Mm-hmm. So my view is it's not that I like mainstream media or that I love the Democrats or that I love Facebook. My view is I want there to be a balance of power. I want I want to keep the power of the most powerful in check so they can't be dictators. And in the U.S. Constitutional Republic, as we've seen in the last term, the president has a whole lot of power, a whole lot of power, probably more than the, the framers maybe intended. I mean, the president could spend habeas corpus. They can, uh, you know, there was all sorts, like the president can potentially commit any crime he wants and maybe, maybe um, pardon himself. It's unclear, mm-hmm. right? So the president has this insane amount of power. So my view is I, I want to I lift up everyone challenging the president. And that's true. That'll be true of Biden, by the way. Like, I want Biden's power. That's why I wasn't thrilled that the Democrats won Georgia. I want mm-hmm. I, I much prefer a Democratic president to the current to you know to the the current Republican leadership, but I want Biden's power checked just as much as I wanted Trump's power checked. Yep. Yep. I'm the same way. I was I I guess I like divided government because it sort of slows things down. And I think a slow government's a good one. Um, yeah, you always hear that old cliche like, oh, Washington doesn't get anything done. And it's like, well, maybe that's okay because <laughs> um, I think the, the, the fewer things Congress is doing, probably the better for everyone. But um, maybe that's just me being old and cynical. Uh, you, you mentioned you're in Costa Rica right now, and I think I saw the photos. Are you planning to stay there sort of through COVID or are you just sort of taking a nice vacation? Uh, this is so kind of, not, well, 
Uh, so no to the first question. I'm actually going to be heading back to the States uh, in a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I was here for five weeks and it definitely, I mean, it was a vacation in the sense of beautiful setting, but I've been working the whole time, sure. um, maybe a couple hours less a day. But uh, I mean, with these, it, it's funny, I, I I was trying, trying to have a two day window where I wouldn't look at my phone this past weekend. Yeah. And I told my team, and that'll been the first two days, by the way, ever in the history of Block Tower, which is which launched August 2017. I have never had <laughs> a 12 hour window where I did didn't check crypto prices in the last three and a half years. Um, and I'm not complaining. I mean, that I, I'm in a wonderful, I'm incredibly privileged and, have, you know, have a wonderful opportunity. But um, the reality is I have a responsibility. You know, I'm running an investment firm and, mm-hmm. and crypto can move so fast and news, news can move so fast. So, but I, I basically, I have a, a really strong team at Block Tower now. I have a really, really strong lead trader. I have a strong, strong set of investment analysts, a strong set of head of ops. And I felt that probably for the first time ever, I feel comfortable kind of leaving the book in their hands for two days. And and with the caveat, by the way, that I would have my phone on me, and they would call me if anything happened. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. um, and so I, I, you know, I was all set to do that this weekend. I, I told, you know, gave the team instructions, said, call me if anything actually does happen. And uh, then I get a price alert, you know, like first thing Saturday, you know, like whatever, 5 a.m. Saturday morning, I forget when, the Bitcoin's up 5%. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I decide not to do anything. I'm like 5%, my team can handle it. You know, I'm, I'm, I trust them. And then like three hours later, it's another price alert, Bitcoin's up another 5%. And I'm like, okay, what the hell? Like, you know, I can't. What can I do? So I, I'm, I'm constantly plugged in, um, which is is a challenge. And I am trying to improve work-life balance and find ways to kind of deal with that. Because, you know, going on four years now, it is hard to deal with the 24-7 hyper-volatile market, uh, you know, and, and trying to kind of make that sustainable. Um, and I've, again, I have a wonderful team that that, that helps with hugely with that. Um, so, oh yeah. Uh, so to answer the question though, when COVID hit, um, I went to the rural Northeast and was staying in a series of Airbnbs for about a month each, uh, partly because I didn't know how long. I, I didn't, you know, in hindsight, maybe it looks obvious we were going to be locked down for basically forever. Uh, that wasn't obvious to me in March. I thought maybe it's three months, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I, I was doing kind of month by month Airbnbs and I was in pe- rural Pennsylvania and um, Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and uh, yeah, now Costa Rica is just kind of a one-off thing. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, basically, as long as COVID's lasting, though, I don't really see why you'd be in a city, um, or at least not the cities that are so heavily locked down. Like, why subject? You know, like living in Costa Rica is amazing, and Co- uh, Costa Rica has a high COVID rate, by the way. Mm-hmm. But but everything is outdoors. Every restaurant is outdoor open seating with seventy five degree weather. Every event, you know, for New Year's, I went to a beach bonfire party, which is on the beach. Right. It, basically, I'm living my life totally normally as though there's no pandemic and doing it safely. Why wouldn't you do that? And I say that knowing there's some privilege there, but actually not that much. Mm-hmm. Like Costa Rica is a lot freaking cheaper than New York or San Francisco. And there is a rent moratorium. So I would actually say this to anyone listening that you don't have to be rich. Like it, it, people think that to travel, you have to be rich. It's literally the opposite. If you're in New York City or San Francisco, you are paying more than almost anyone else in the world to live. Like you are paying five times. Like the average Costa Rican is living in a giant, you know, not a giant house, but the average Costa Rican who is, you know, a very, very average income, they're living such a higher quality of life than you. They're living Mm -hmm. in a giant house by the beach, beautiful weather, you know, and then it's not because they're rich, right? They're living on 15 grand a year. Um, So yeah, I I would, I would strongly suggest anyone who is kind of in in self-imposed lockdown in San Francisco or New York or wherever, get the hell out and improve your quality of life. And, and I, if you're in stuck in a lease, stop paying it. Uh, 
<laughs> right? Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's really incredible, and that's one thing that COVID has done. I think, and that's been positive. Maybe one of the only things is that people are like, "Oh shit, I really can do my job from anywhere as long as I'm sort of like in the time zone I ought to be." <laughs> so you were smart; you just basically flew south. Um, so you're what? Yeah, you're you're in a similar time zone, so you can yeah, still take yeah, yeah. calls. It's uh, it's Central Time, Perfect. so it's yeah, yeah. So uh, you know that that's a really good idea, and I I'm just. So I have kids, so it's harder for me to do that, but I'm really looking forward to the chance of traveling again. I, you know, I've been making lists and thinking about where I'll go. Everyone's talking about what Lambo they're going to buy. And I'm like, I just want to get on a freaking plane and go somewhere. <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my, from, I was gonna say my analysis, but that sounds so like highfalutin. Um, the, the, the public commentary that as far as I can tell is accurate is that it is pretty safe to travel on a plane right now. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously the TSA and the government have been shouting that from the rooftops, right? It's like, we're, we're killing small businesses. We're closing restaurants and gyms and yet airlines are, and yet like basically the government, including the Democrats are encouraged people to fly on on airlines because airlines are politically important mm -hmm. and uh, have big unions. Um, and but the reality is almost no one's getting COVID on planes. Uh, and you know I don't know if their explanations are true, which is constantly circulating air and they have all these extra measures and they're filtering the air and all that. But as far as I can tell from the data, it's pretty safe to get on a plane today. Great. Well, yeah, I I guess I've just been scared shitless by all the <laughs> CNN articles. Um, but you're you're probably right. I'm sure they have very uh, sophisticated s filtration systems and things. Well, we're, we're over and I, I want to be conscious of your time. And this was a lot of fun. I feel like we could have about four more of these. Um, but I appreciate your time, Ari. This is fun. Is, is there anything else you're working on that people ought to know about, or is it just sort of business as usual for you? No, business as usual. And, and the, I, I joke about this that I can barely, I, I actually, I have, I have a girlfriend who jokes that she has four jobs and <laughs> I, I joke, I can barely do one. And I, I, I've kept my life so radically simple. I've lived in Airbnbs and hotels. I have three suitcases of possessions to my name. I don't do anything other than what I'm doing because I don't have the mental bandwidth or the energy to like, every once in a while I'm tempted, like, oh, maybe I should do this other commercial thing or economic thing, or like, or even more simply, maybe I should, you know, diversify a little and, and look at stocks or look at real estate. And I'm like, I don't even want to take four hours to try to figure out what real estate REIT to put money into. I want to spend that four hours looking at the crypto market, you know? So no, I, I am a very boring person and do nothing other than crypto. Well, it's good to specialize and it seems like you're kicking ass doing it. So why, why, why change it if it's not broken? So well, trying uh, at, at the end of this bull run, I will, I will, you know, rat, I will diversify in all ways. I do want to have a more well-rounded life, but you know, when you see the opportunity, this is literally the opportunity of a lifetime. And this is the, this is the moment that you seize it, not, yeah. not look to, uh, to balance. Yeah. This is what we've been training for, for the last three painful years of this bear market. So let's go. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, everyone listening, follow Ari at, at Ari David Paul on Twitter. Um, great content. And you even get to see some cool Costa Rican photos right now. <laughs> uh, Bully, right. it was a pleasure. Really a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ari. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday, 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.